This is a Scream Queen production. Summer break is over, a festival of oddities is over, until next year, of course, and So Dead is back and uninterrupted until our season finale in November. Speaking of a festival of oddities, that shit was crazy. Were you there? Somewhere in the ballpark of 15,000 people showed up. 15,000 people. That is insane. But We'll talk about all of that later. What I want to talk about right now is what has become probably my favorite part of the festival, doing a live show with my friend Nina instead of Already Gone. Nina is phenomenal and it's always such an honor to work with her. Someday I will shell out the money to rent equipment so that our shows can be recorded, but this year was not that year. This year I wasted, I, I spent <laughs> all of my festival dollars on something else, something that turned out to be a valuable lesson and a good story, but also a nightmare. And I'll tell you about that a little later too. Anyway, I hope very, very much that Nina turns her story from the live show into an episode of Already Gone because it was such a good one. I am going to share my live show story with you today. <laughs> Even if you were there and you heard me tell it the first time, it is definitely worth another listen because the live show version was condensed. Uh, So more meat and potatoes here. Nina and I decided this year to cover stories from Charlotte, which is home base for a festival of oddities. And mine is one that I pulled out of a dusty old newspaper after it was forgotten to time. You guys know how I love finding random old stories to cover that nobody's ever heard or nobody remembers. So uh, today I'm going to tell you about Charlotte's Chop Shop murders. Not familiar? Well, take a fucking seat because this one is so messy. Before we get started, I want to take a moment to thank today's sponsor. Spooky season is here, friends, and as the seasons change, now is the perfect time to reset and think about little changes you can make in your daily routine to better your health. Care Of is a subscription service that ships high-quality, personalized vitamins, supplements, and powders conveniently to your door every month. Care Of's free app gives you daily reminders to take your vitamins and even rewards you for doing so with exclusive discounts and merch just for tracking your progress. Just take a short, in-depth quiz about your lifestyle and health goals for a personalized recommendation. Take the guesswork out of what supplements are best suited for you. I am a forgetful, forgetful human who is always in a rush, so I love how easy Care Of makes it to take my daily vitamins. 
Each day's supplements come in individual packets with my name and an inspirational quote even, so it's easy to just grab and go on my way out the door. And with the app reminders, it's literally impossible to forget to take them. For 50% off your first care of order, go to takecareof.com and enter code SODEAD50, all one word, S-O-D-E-A-D, and then the number five and the number zero. Again, that's takecareof.com, promo code SODEAD50, all one word, for 50% off your first order. And be sure to tell them I sent you. All right, let's get into it. In the late 1970s, police nationwide and here locally had their hands full with the sudden serial killer epidemic. In mid-Michigan alone, we had at least two serial killers. We had Donald Jean Miller and Gerald Wingart on the prowl. Young women and girls were going missing and being murdered all over the area. But authorities here had another problem on their hands a massive interstate auto theft ring that was headquartered right here in mid-Michigan, where I live and breathe. The Eaton County Sheriff's Office, the Michigan State Police, and an FBI task force spent months putting together a case against over two dozen men, local politicians, millionaires, mobsters, and business owners among them. On June 17, 1980, 26 persons were indicted by a federal grand jury on charges ranging from conspiracy to transporting stolen vehicles and everything in between. Nearly 100 stolen vehicles worth over half a million dollars were recovered, which sounds like a lot, but that's hardly a drop in the bucket looking at this overall operation because one of the men indicted told police he'd personally, just just one guy, stolen about 1,600 vehicles over a period of six years, about four vehicles every day for years and years and years. Among those indicted were 58-year-old Glenn Lee Archer, a self-made millionaire, and by self-made, I mean that he got his money through shady business dealings. He once owned a construction company in Charlotte, and he was a business associate of infamous mafia money man Peter Lazaros of Detroit. Also indicted were 48-year-old Bill Smallwood, the owner of Smallwood's Truck and Trailers on Northeast Street in Lansing, who was said to be the leader of this auto theft ring, and 42-year-old Thomas Woodruff, Bath Township supervisor and owner of Woody's Auto Sales in Bath. Fun fact, real quick. Through all of my sleuthing, I found that... um, Thomas Woodruff's parents lived on the same street that I grew up on while I was growing up. So just a few blocks down the road, his parents were my neighbors. Talk about close to home. Woodruff strongly maintained his innocence following his highly publicized arrest, but 21-year-old Michael Arend of Holt, which is just a little suburb south of Lansing, who was a former member of the ring, turned state's witness, gave a sworn statement that... Woodruff had personally handed him the keys to multiple stolen vehicles and paid him to take them across state lines. In fact, Michael Arend was the key witness against all of the men who'd been charged, which again included politicians, men with ties to the mafia, millionaires, business owners, and even Arend's own brother. Because he was so important to their case, 
The FBI put Aaron in the Witness Protection Program and sent him to Sioux Falls, South Dakota under the assumed name Michael R. Phillips to hide out until the trials began later that year. The indictments, largely based on Aaron's statements, were handed down on June 17, 1980, as we've already discussed. Less than two months later, on July 29th, an anonymous man called the Sioux Falls Police Department to report that a friend had overdosed on drugs after threatening suicide. Police were directed to a local motel where they found Michael Phillips, a.k.a. Michael Arend, clinging to life. He was rushed to the nearest hospital where he died five days later on August 4th. Sioux Falls Police ruled Aaron's death a suicide, but the whole thing was sketchy. So they said that his death was due to an overdose, but when an anonymous caller contacted the Sioux Falls Argus Leader newspaper and told them Aaron had been shot, the police department then admitted that Aaron didn't overdose. Um, He had actually died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head and that a twenty-two caliber pistol was found on the bed next to his body. But when Aaron's body was returned to Michigan for his funeral and burial, a mortician who helped prepare the body revealed to the press here that there was no bullet hole in his head. The Sioux Falls Police Department explained that away by saying the bullet hole must have been in the back of his head. We weren't able to confirm this because the backside of his body was never examined due to the fact that he was said to be too big to turn over, which sounds real fake to me. The newspaper said he was nearly 400 pounds at the time of his death. But you're telling me someone in the witness protection program dies and you can't do a thorough investigation? Just just none of it makes sense. And they didn't. In addition to the fact that a thorough examination of the body wasn't done, there was no coroner called to the scene because Aaron was technically still alive when police arrived, so there was no coroner's report. There were no photos taken of the scene of the hotel before it was scrubbed and cleaned and rented back out to someone that needed a room, and there was no autopsy done at all. So obviously, authorities here in Michigan, the ones who'd sent Michael away to hide, were concerned. So they started digging a little deeper, and they found that Michael Arend wasn't the only young member of the local chop shop with a big old question mark over what happened to him. Two years earlier, in 1978, 25-year-old Charles Chucky Keckler of Mason, whose entire family basically was involved in this particular criminal enterprise, disappeared into thin air. He was reported missing by family members on September 9, 1978. He was last seen at a bowling alley in South Lansing. The State Journal did not specify which bowling alley, but that old Metro Bowl on MLK and Jolly like immediately came to mind for me. Chucky's car was found at Briarcliff Apartments on Lansing's southeast side, which, by the way, is less than three miles from the aforementioned bowling alley. So it's looking more and more like the spot to me here. But Chucky himself was just nowhere to be found. There were rumors, though, that he'd been murdered at the bowling alley that night by members of the chop shop ring he'd turned on and was set to testify against. When Michael Aaron died in 1980, Chucky Keckler's uncle, 33-year-old Fred Keckler of Diamonddale, was behind bars awaiting sentencing after being convicted of altering VIN numbers on stolen vehicles. So police questioned him about his nephew's disappearance, like, hey, 
we're not dumb. We had Chucky scheduled to testify against you guys, and he disappeared. Then we had Michael Aaron scheduled to testify against you guys, and he took his own life. We see what's going on here. Where's Chucky? Fred offered them information in exchange for immunity, and on August 28, 1980, two months after the big sting and three weeks after the mysterious death of Michael Arend, Fred Keckler led authorities to his nephew's body. It was buried 12 feet beneath a concrete slab that served as the foundation of a pole barn on Fred's Diamonddale farm at 2515 Gunnell Road. The badly decomposed corpse had a thick dog chain wrapped around the neck, which is why the press coined this case the dog chain murder. According to Fred, on September 15, 1978, which FYI, that is six days after Chucky was reported missing by his family, so that's odd right off the bat. Fred said that he, Chucky, and a 38-year-old Lansing man who worked for Fisher Body by the name of William Bentley went for a little leisurely drive in the country late at night for no good reason at all. And as they were driving down Eifert Road in Holt, Chucky and William began to argue because Chucky, like Michael Arend, had turned state's witness and was set to testify against members of the chop shop ring. Just so we're clear here, six days after his family reported him missing, Chucky Keckler voluntarily went for a late night drive in the country with two men he was set to testify against. I don't care if one of them was his uncle. That didn't happen. It just, it did not happen. But back to Fred's fake story. So he said that this argument between Chucky and William turned physical, and then the man were magically out of the car somehow because William punched Chucky in the stomach and knocked him to the ground. He then grabbed a large dog chain that he just conveniently had on him, wrapped it around Chucky's neck, and strangled him, all while Chucky's uncle Fred just stood there and watched. Once Chucky stopped struggling, Fred checked for a pulse and he didn't find one. William pulled out a crowbar that he also conveniently just had on him, and he bludgeoned Chucky with it for good measure. The two men then took the body back to Fred's farm in Diamonddale. Fred fired up the backhoe, dug a 12-foot deep hole, and dumped his nephew's body, chain still wrapped around his neck, inside. William Bentley, for his part, told basically the same story, but he said that Fred Keckler was the killer and he was the innocent bystander. Authorities decided the evidence supported Fred's story, so they offered him immunity and they charged William Bentley with second-degree murder. Just to recap, in 1978, 25-year-old Chucky Keckler turned state's witness and was scheduled to testify against members of the chop shop ring he was once a part of. When he disappeared, all of those charges were dropped. In 1980, 21-year-old Michael Arend turned state's witness against that same chop shop ring, then took his own life before he could testify. When he died, a lot of the cases he was supposed to testify in fell apart. Prosecutors offered generous plea deals in some of the cases and had to just completely drop the charges in others, including the case against politician Thomas Woodruff of Bath. When asked why he dropped the charges, the prosecuting attorney said, because dead men can't talk, referring to the death of Michael Arend. So what, my dear friends, do you predict happened to Fred Keckler 
a member of that same chop shop ring, when he was named key witness in the trial of another member of the ring for the murder of his nephew. I'll tell you, of course, even though I'm sure you've already figured it out, but first I've got to thank today's other sponsor. I have been listening to the Dateline podcast a lot as of late because Keith Morrison's voice gives me life. And what could make the world's most calming voice sound even more buttery smooth? My Raycon wireless earbuds. Raycon's everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever before. With optimized gel tips for the perfect in-ear fit, these earbuds are so comfortable and they will not budge. Trust me. Raycons give you eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. And they're very reasonably priced. You get quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. There's a reason Raycon's everyday earbuds have over 50,000 five-star reviews. As someone who goes back and forth a lot between audiobooks, podcasts, and music, I love being able to quickly swap between preset profiles to get the best sound possible. My favorite feature, though, is awareness mode, which allows you to still hear what's going on around you while you're listening to your favorite music, podcasts, whatever. Gotta stay alert all the time. Go to buyraycon.com today and use code SODEAD15 to get 15% off your Raycon order. That's code SODEAD15, all one word, S-O-D-E-A-D-1-5, at buyraycon.com. That's B-U-Y-R-A-Y-C-O-N.com to score 15% off. One more time, buyraycon.com, code SODEAD15. Don't forget to tell them I sent you. William Bentley's trial for the murder of Chucky Keckler was set for the summer of 1983, nearly five years after Chucky's death, due to a whole bunch of legal wrangling and fighting over jurisdiction between Eaton County, Ingham County, FBI. It was a mess. Um, But yeah, so it took five years. The trial was coming. And then, just like magic, six weeks before the trial was scheduled to begin, key witness Fred Keckler was murdered himself. By another member of the Chop Shop Ring, of course. His own nephew, 28-year-old Gerald Truax Jr. of Charlotte, who went by the nickname Jacko. Following a call to police from Fred's estranged girlfriend who witnessed his murder, authorities questioned Jacko and he led them to his uncle's body in a wooded area in Calhoun County. The body was hogtied. The feet were tied to the hands behind Fred's back with another rope drawn across his open mouth, which like, okay, if you're going to hogtie a body before you dump it, I feel like you've done this before. I, I don't know. Maybe that's just me overthinking it. Fred was wrapped in two plastic bags, a sleeping bag, and then a pink blanket that was bound with rope. His body was then dumped in the woods and buried beneath a thin pile of leaves, so not hidden very well at all. Some hunter was bound to find him sooner or later. An investigation would find that on April 21st, 1983, 36-year-old Fred drove to Jacko's home on Bradley Street to confront him over the title to a truck. A stolen truck? Probably. It was kind of like a Fred gave Jocko this truck, and then he got mad at him, so he wanted it back, and Jocko was like, no, you gave it to me. So 
The two men started to argue. Jacko pulled out a gun and he shot his uncle six times as Fred Keckler begged for his life. According to Jacko, he had no choice. His uncle was a dangerous man who hurt people often. He often bragged about the time he choked his favorite nephew with a dog chain, threw him in a 12-foot pit and buried him alive, then built a pole barn over the body which is a bit of a different story from what he told police, right? And now Jacko was his favorite nephew. Fred reminded him of that often. Don't forget what happened to my last favorite nephew. Multiple witnesses testified that Fred was abusive to most of the people in his life, including Jacko. He terrorized his girlfriend, his own girlfriend, and her kids. He burned down a neighbor's house for calling the police on him. He regularly physically assaulted and threatened Jacko, but on the night that he died, he went too far. He threatened to kidnap and kill Jacko's three-year-old son if Jacko didn't give him the title and money that he was demanding. So Jacko defended his family. Authorities didn't see it as self-defense, though. Fred Keckler had become a valuable tool in their arsenal. He was the key witness in William Bentley's upcoming murder trial, He'd helped them set up a local doctor who tried to hire someone to kill his wife. And that's kind of a funny, not funny story, actually, that's going to tie into today's liquid cheese. In January of 1981, less than six months after Fred Keckler was granted immunity for his role in Chucky Keckler's murder, Dr. Robert Guild of Mason and his friend Gerald McKenzie of Lansing, who was a construction worker, decided together that they wanted their wives dead. Gerald McKenzie knew a guy, Fred Keckler, who knew people. So on January 30th, the two men drove to the Red Roof Inn in West Lansing, and they met with Fred and a man they thought was a contract killer, but was really an undercover police officer. So Fred Keckler was a police informant set to testify in, at the very least, two important upcoming trials. And then Jocko fucked it all up by killing him. The reason was irrelevant. So they charged him with second-degree murder, and in June of 1984, he was convicted. Jacko Truex's sentencing was scheduled for Thursday, July 12, 1984. But it should surprise you not to learn that he never made it to his sentencing hearing. On Tuesday, July 10th, less than a half hour after officers had last checked on him, the 28-year-old father of one was found hanging from the end of a torn bedsheet in his cell. Life-saving measures were attempted, but Jacko was pronounced dead at the local hospital at 4.40 a.m. Now, while this does give off Epstein vibes a little bit, I'm not saying that Jacko's death wasn't a suicide. I'm just saying that the fact that he killed a valuable police informant very likely played a role in his treatment in the jail and his access to a fair trial, all of which, I'm sure, weighed heavily on his mental state. And that is the wild true story of Grand Theft Auto Charlotte Edition. (laughs) Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My sources for today's episode were nothing but newspapers.com, literally just old, old newspapers. This is one of those stories that was just kind of like lost in the archives that I stumbled upon by chance. Which is crazy because a lot of people died in this one, and so it seems like folks would remember it, but not. And over what? Some cars? 
It's just, it's wild. All right. How about a little liquid cheese? And we're going to keep talking about the good old Red Roofin in West Lansing. So something that I never told you guys back when I, I first covered this, remember way, way back in season one when I was telling you the story about how I thought that I had found this, <laughs> the Zodiac Killer uh, living in the hotel motel that I worked in? That was the Red Roof Inn on the west side. Now, is the Red Roof the lap of luxury? No. But I worked there for well over a year, and I absolutely still, until last weekend, would have said if someone was, you know, coming in town to do a bunch of shit and just needed, like, a a cheap place to stay, stay at the Red Roof. It's clean. It's safe. Yeah. It's not either of those things anymore, and I found that out the hard way. So a Festival of Oddities was last weekend, um, and we had a special guest this year. Uh, Ari Lehman, the very first actor to ever play Jason Voorhees. So he was in the first movie at the very end of the movie where the little boy pops up out of the water and drowns like the lone survivor of the massacre. That was that was him. So he wasn't Jason with the mask, but he was the first actor to ever play the character of Jason Voorhees. So he's booked to be at the festival all day Saturday, and then his band's going to play at the end of the festival, and then he's going to go to a screening of the movie at the local theater after that. And then he booked a concert for Friday night in Indiana, I want to say. So he wasn't getting in until very, very, very late Friday, like 3-ish in the morning on Friday, so technically Saturday, technically the day of the festival, right? So... I booked him at the Red Roof because a lot of things were full or wildly overpriced for what they were simply because it was uh, Michigan State University's first home football game, first football game and first home game of the season. So a lot of stuff was already booked when I went to book his room. And I was like, okay, Red Roof, it's not great, but it's it's clean and it's safe. And all he's going to be doing is sleeping for a few hours before he comes to the festival. So like, it's fine. It wasn't fine. It, it wasn't fine. Now, I did go to the Red Roof and check him in myself, but this is day before the festival. I'm running around like crazy. I'm doing a bunch of stuff. Ever since I had COVID, my sense of smell is very off. So I you know, ran into the office, talked to the girls a little bit, told them who was going to be staying there, told them you know, I used to work there. We talked for a bit. It was fine. I took his key I went and just opened the door to his room real quick to set some stuff inside, and then I left. I didn't really look around. I wasn't really paying attention. I didn't see any other guests that were staying there because it was kind of middle of the day, so there was nobody really out and about. I just dropped his stuff off, and I left and went back to business. Got home Friday night, went to bed, and 3.30 in the morning, I get a text from Ari that it is the most disgusting like sketchy place he's ever stayed. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute, what's happening? He said that his room reeked horribly of cats, which they do allow pets there, but like weird. And that everything was filthy and his sheets were dirty and he'd already made them change his room one time and the second one was just as bad. And I was like, okay, I like, This is all new information to me at 3.30 in the morning. I didn't realize this place had been so run down. I was only there for a couple seconds. Other than that, I probably hadn't seen the place in, you know, 20 years, you know. So 
I was like, okay, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I wasn't aware that it had gotten so gross. Um, you know, let me see if I can find you somewhere else. And then again, that was tricky. There's a lot of hotels right there, but it was MSU's first football game of the season and it was a home game. So a lot of these places are full. But (laughs) when I was calling these other places and trying to like explain to them what happened and what I needed at four o'clock in the morning before the festival is about to start, they were all like, oh, no, no, you never, no, never book anybody at the Red Roof Inn. And the the clerk at the hotel that I actually wound up moving them to uh, she was like, oh no, no, it, it, yeah, never, never. It didn't used to be so bad. You know, it wasn't a bad place until a couple years ago and then COVID hit. And when people that normally couldn't afford a room started getting unemployment and stimulus money, they kind of like moved in and just never left. And, um, she just kept saying, the locals took over. The locals took over. The locals came in and took over. And I'm like, what locals? This is Delta Township. What are you talking about? (laughs) Anyway, it was just a funny conversation. Not funny at four in the morning, but funny now that I'm thinking about it. So finally, like 4.35, almost five o'clock in the morning, um, this new hotel agrees to get some rooms cleaned and ready and they can check in by 6 a.m. By this point, like Ari's he's tired and he's got a long day ahead of him. So he's like, just let me sleep here. Come pick me up at noon and we'll move to the new hotel tomorrow. So that was settled, but it did kind of set things off on a bad track. And and the reason I keep laughing about the red roof is because, um, yeah, like my story for the festival involves the hotel that kind of sent my festival into a spiral after that all happened. So Things just did not start off on a good note. You know, I apologized profusely, 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 but there, you know, I stayed up for hours fixing my mistake, my mistake. You know, I should have gone and checked the place out a little better. I didn't. I thought I knew what it was like and I didn't apparently, but the remainder of our experience was not good. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to go into real specific details but I, at first I wasn't going to say anything at all, but I feel like I have to be transparent. I know that most of the fans that came to a Festival of Oddities to meet Ari Lehman had a good experience with him. Um, all day long, all I heard was good things from fans and then also from our staff about how good he was with his fans. He was only good <laughs> with his fans though. I don't know if he had just had it with me because of the hotel situation or if he was overly tired. I'm not real sure what happened, but our day with him, once the festival started, began with him refusing to come out of his hotel room. The hotel room that he said was too gross to even sit down in, he just wouldn't come out of it. He didn't come out until almost one o'clock. His meet and greet was supposed to start at 11, which We'd pushed it back a couple hours so that he could get a little more rest, but we were supposed to pick him up at noon, and his band was down and ready to go. He would not come out of his room, and he didn't come out until almost 1 o'clock. He got there. Again, wonderful with fans for most of the day. Pretty rude and shitty to our staff and volunteers. Um, 
And then as the day wore on, so he initially was scheduled for, you know, a meet and greet from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. It wound up being 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. because, well, maybe like 4.30-ish, because, you know, we pushed it back a couple hours and then he made it go even longer by refusing to come out of his hotel room. So he did his meet and greet with fans. Um, end of the day, I, you know, I was doing my thing. I was running my booth and kind of putting out fires all over. It was 90 degrees outside and there were 15,000 people there. So it was a fun time, but it was, it was also, there was things about it that were not so fun this year. Um, so I, I'm handling all of that. And they said he wanted to talk to me when he was getting ready to close up his meet and greet and get ready and go do his band's performance out on the lawn. As I walk upstairs, I can hear him yelling. And as I get close to the room that he's in, I see a member of the volunteer staff for the museum ushering out this young reporter from the local news station who's like almost in tears. And he's yelling. And I'm like, holy shit, what's going on here? Apparently, they wanted to get some footage of him. And she said something that he took offense to. Uh, Like, she asked him to look busy. And he thought that meant that he wasn't busy. And really, it was just because he was, you know, packing up his stuff to go down and do his show. And they wanted him to look like he was still, you know, interacting with fans or whatever. I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't there. I didn't hear it. I just was told that what was said was, can you try to look busy? And he lost it on this poor reporter and just started yelling at her and screaming. And um, yeah. Uh, And so then, you know, I'm trying to calm him down and he's done, right, with the fan portion. He's not taking any more money for autographs and selfies with people. So now the fans coming into the room are just people to him and not someone that's going to give him money And so he flipped out on, in front of me, like that I personally saw, I personally saw him flip out on um, a man with his teenage daughter and her friend, and then another man with his young son, one of them for stepping too close to him when he had money in his hands, and one of them for asking for an autograph and not showing up five hours earlier to get that autograph. So I'm just dumbfounded at this point. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm apologizing profusely to these people. I'm trying to calm him down. He's being terrible to me. I just, I don't have words for what that experience was like. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. And I was in shock. When I'm left speechless, you know a situation is bad. Um, So he went downstairs and his band performed and his performance was, you know, exactly what, what it was. He was on while he was performing. But during the setup and the teardown, again, just really, really rude to the sound guys and our staff. And our portion of the evening with him ended with taking him to a nearby restaurant to eat. And just like in the morning when he refused to come out of his hotel room, he was refusing to get out of the van. (laughs) So I don't, again, you know, a good portion of his attitude about the whole event was my fault. It started out rough with me booking him at this apparently disgustingly filthy, dangerous shantytown of a motel. And so that is my fault. And I owned up to that. And I I can't even apologize for it anymore because I apologized to him at least a million and 72 times. The rest of it, though, 
I just don't have words for it, except to tell you <laughs> that that experience is exactly why we probably will not have any more celebrity guests at the festival. Um, it just wasn't worth it. Honestly, it wasn't worth it. It was so stressful, and he was just not good to our staff. We, he, I don't, I feel like he probably walked away thinking he didn't have a good experience with us, but we also didn't have a good experience with him. So, unless we can ever convince good old hometown boy Matthew Lillard to come to the festival, which trust me, I've been trying, but I can't get past his booking agent. Um, <laughs> unless we can get dear sweet Matthew, we'll probably not do the celebrity guest thing anymore. I'm thinking. Anyway, so. That is the story of um, my horrible experience with the first actor to ever play Jason Voorhees in the Friday the 13th series, as well as never, ever, ever stay at or let anyone you know stay at the Red Roof Inn in West Lansing. That or the hotel next to it, the, the clerk at the new hotel told me. So we learned something every day. The locals, <laughs> the locals took them over. Last thing about the festival. I do want to thank our sponsors this year. We were so fortunate to have some wonderful local businesses throw us some financial support. Uh, we had Erica Joe Photography, Creepy Kawaii, Addis Enterprises, Junk in the Trunk, Already Gone, Owens Riverside Candles, and Century Construction. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you who helped support the festival this year. I do want to tell you about a couple of upcoming events really quickly. I will probably have more as we get further into fall. Spooky season is my busy season, of course. So I am doing uh, a cemetery tour called Ghosts, Ghouls, and Graveyards on September 25th from 3 to 5 p.m. at Mount Hope Cemetery in Lansing with the Friends of the Mount Hope Cemetery. It's actually their event. They've got some ghost hunters coming um, and some historians coming, but their basis for this year's tour was my book, Haunted Lansing. So I will be there. I'll do a couple of the stories. I will be signing and selling copies of Haunted Lansing. I don't off the top of my head remember how much it costs. I think not very much. It might even be free. I don't know. I should know, but I don't know. 3 to 5 p.m., September 25th, Mount Hope Cemetery, Ghosts, Ghouls, and Graveyards Tour. And then this event I'm so excited about. The Obsessed Podcast Network is hosting a true crime podcast festival at the end of September called Obsessed Fest. It's in Columbus, Ohio from September 30th to October 2nd. If you just look up Obsessed Fest online, you'll find tons of information about it. Um, but basically, it's three days of all of these really big important podcasters and true crime figures doing live shows and meet and greets and book signings. And I will be there as my bookstore, as Dead Time Stories, hosting the signings for Rabia Chaudhry, Damien Eccles of the West Memphis Three, Elena from Morbid, her new novel that just came out, and Amber Hunt from Accused. So, like, I'm pretty nervous. And then the, the the special guests beyond the ones that have books that they'll be doing signings for, you know, Generation Y, Let's Go to Court, Maggie Freeling will be there. Just all of these really heavy hitters in the true crime industry, and I'm so nervous, so nervous. I feel like I'm a little bit out of my element. But if any of you are going, please stop by the Dead Time Stories booth and say hello 
I'm very excited about it, but I'm very nervous. Anyway, I think that's all I've got for you today. Go follow me on the socials, really only active on Facebook, the So Dead Facebook group, and a little bit on Instagram. Not, not much. The big one's TikTok these days, right? So my TikTok handle is ScreamQueen517. Or I also think if you just put in Jen Carpenter, that'll pull it up. New true crime story time coming your way next week. And then another new episode of So Dead the week after that. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks. <laughs>